This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And welcome to episode 40 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Confessions and Lamentations. It's a feel-good ep. Welcome once more to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Uh, we are bearing down on the end of the season, and um, you'd think that as we're getting so close to the end of the season, we'd be having all these arc-heavy episodes, and this one isn't. This one is... It's heavy. Heavy, yeah, yeah. Heavy. It's so heavy, it's so depressing, you might want to, you know, hug a loved one afterward. So, of course, if it's a heavy and depressing episode, hi, Jason Snell from The Incomparable Network, who comes in here for all of our depressing episodes. Hi, everybody. Did any kids die in this one? <laughs> yes. Everybody uh, yes. did. Oh boy. Yeah. Welcome uh, back, Jason. Welcome back. I believe I've also been on an episode where no kids died. One episode. So, mm-hmm. you know. One episode. So, uh, Jason <sighs> is in some ways the godfather of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5 because he had Erica and me over for an incomparable episode of Babylon 5 prior to the launch of this podcast. And Jason you do tend to pick the soul-crushing episodes. You volunteer for them and yes. explain your dark black soul, sir. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think we mentioned this a little bit um, with, uh, what was it Believers? Believers, yes. yeah. With, uh, with that, yeah. Um, I, I appreciate when Babylon 5 goes in places that uh, you don't expect them to go. And I think that... Um, some of the, the reasons I loved these episodes when they originally aired were where I felt that they were brave choices made at a time when the competition, which is Star Trek, which I love Star Trek just as much as as uh, as the next person. Um, but Star Trek was not in the place of going, you know, it wasn't going dark. It wasn't taking chances like this. And one of the things you can do in a widescreen uh, space opera kind of setting is t- is tell some big stories with some dark implications and 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 this story definitely has that and I, I think that it brings out some of the best moments in some of the regular cast members um, I think it's got some great guest stars and yeah it has some indelibly tragic moments but they're indelible moments in ba- Babylon 5 that I can I can picture them years later um, from you know watching it the first time, so I I, I do love this episode, but I think that's why I'm dra- drawn to the dark episodes in uh, at least these two dark episodes is is uh, is that that I fe- I feel it's brave to to be so sad and be so dark because you you know it's entertainment. Let's keep it light and fun. I think that's a tendency, and boy, we don't get that here. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Um, did anybody else require counseling afterward? <laughs> Steven was just sort of sitting there gobsmacked. He was just like, whoa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he turns to me and he says, uh, they have killed at least two children and a teddy bear on this show. They go for it. (laughs) (laughs) So he had a lot of the same thoughts that uh, that Jason did about how, you know, he's like, Star Trek would never do this. It was just too much, or at least, you know, at the time. Yeah. Yeah, same here. I, I was approaching Confessions and Lamentations with some of the same some of the same dread I had with believers, um, wondering if it was going to hurt just as much. Believers didn't hurt quite as much in, in retrospect when I when I watched it again for the podcast. Confessions and Lamentations did because I was seeing mm-hmm. even more, um, not just the story itself and the scope of it, but um, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, a little bit later on. But JMS was deliberately finding every possible button and mashing them all at once. <laughs> but Florn. But that's also that's a button of of its own. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not saying that the happy button, the silly button at all averaged out to uh to, to balance all the sad buttons, but there are some <laughs> buttons on the other side of the console. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do our quick little recaps because, you know, we're going to talk about this episode for up to an hour. We may as well freshen the memory of uh this um, uh, you know, it's kind of ripping the Band-Aid off, but let's talk yeah. about, let, let's recap what happened, because sometimes people listen to this podcast having not seen the episode actually in a while. So, if this is the first episode of Babylon 5 you have ever seen. <laughs> wow. We're oh sorry. My. We're so sorry. <laughs> oh, goodness. 
So what you needed to know going into it was that Babylon 5 is a United Nations in space, as we repeatedly say, with a number of alien races represented that are trying and frequently failing to understand each other or to just get ahead in the universe. The station is led by Captain John Sheridan, who before he arrived was a hero in the war against the Minbari, represented by Ambassador Delin, with whom Sheridan has been developing a level of respect and friendship. Just last episode, she brought him into the loop of a great war that is coming. That was then. This is now. In this episode, the alien Markab population starts dying of a plague that they consider to be a judgment of the gods for immoral behavior and has therefore kept secret. Once made aware, Franklin and Markab doctor Lazarin race against time to find a cure before the population dies out and or the plague jumps species. Franklin discovers a vaccine, but not before all of the Markab on B5 and the Markab homeworld die. And audiences at home grab a drink, hug a a teddy bear, (laughs) or switch to the Muppet Show for a chaser. (laughs) Meanwhile, Sheridan orders Keffer to stop his searches for the mysterious shadow vessels. Delenn invites Sheridan over for a dinner that would cure insomnia... And Delin and Lanier go into the Markab containment area to offer comfort and support for the dying. Delin and Lanier could use the Muppet Show themselves. Hmm. So, yeah, that was Confessions and Lamentations, um, which uh, the Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5, um, our online spiritual father um, at midwinter.com slash lurk, notes that there are a heck of a lot of parallels to the Jewish Passover in this story. Uh, as well as an obvious AIDS allegory. Uh, how does this story fit into the season, um, since it's not an arc episode? Is the tonal shift appropriate, or is it jarring? Um, when you're watching the series one episode at a time, what happens when you get here as a viewer? I'm not sure I can answer that question very well simply because I knew it was coming and I've known it's been coming for a few episodes and it's just been like this big thing hanging on the horizon. And so I, my memories of seeing it for the first time, which was when I was you know, looping around and I had already seen some stuff after this, uh, was that it came as quite a shock, but that that was not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think I think episode to episode, we get tonal shifts quite a bit. I mean, we had a ton of it in the first season, and even still a little bit in the second season. And I think that this one just ended up shifting in a direction. I mean, it at the beginning of the episode, you don't know that's what's going to happen at the end of the episode. So I think most of the episode, the first time you're seeing it, you're kind of expecting a triumphant win at the end by Dr. Franklin. So it doesn't feel like it's that big of a shift um, from any of the other episodes because we've got a bad guy. In this case, the bad guy is, is just, you know, a disease itself, which they are actively fighting against. And it's pretty exciting. And you're on the edge of your seat. And then at the end, it doesn't go where you were expecting it to go, which I think is a strength and a wonderful thing. Um, so, so I don't feel like it felt out of place, and I don't think like it felt like it felt uneven, at least not to me. Well, there is kind yeah. of a bad guy, and it's not a, it's not an individual yeah. character so much as an attitude, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. Um, I I kind of agree with Erica. I think it it's not that abrupt of a shift because that's one of the things that made Babylon Five so different when it first aired um, in a universe that was dominated by Star Trek was Babylon 5 was willing to show its characters failing. And this is a tiny example of that bigger picture. We had at the end of season one, Seclara Garibaldi, they failed to stop the assassination of the Earth president. More recently, you know, the Sheridan and, and company um, and everybody involved failed to stop the eruption of the Narn and Centauri War. So this is just, it's another example of things that happen while the bigger picture is swirling around uh, with the war and the conflict, and now this new information of a great war coming. Just another reminder of there are still, small is not the right word, but there are still other battles to be fought, and they may or may not win. So it. It did not strike me as too much of a diversion. Now, Jason, you were watching this in real time. You, Absolutely. I, I think you're the only one of the uh, four of us who was watching every episode as it aired at this point, right? 
I think so. In fact, um, this is at the height of my uh, obsession and uh, reading of the Lurker's Guide. I believe that note about the parallel with Passover was submitted by me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there are a couple of episodes at the end of the season that you'll see my name at the bottom of the Lurker's Guide because I compiled those episodes because they aired earlier in the UK. So, so yeah, this is, I think Shannon totally nailed it, which is, this is a deprogramming episode. This is an episode where... um, it, although it doesn't seem to serve the larger arc of the series, it's just hammering home again that that our, sometimes our our, our characters are, are going to be powerless against the the events that are happening across the galaxy. And we saw it in the in the most recent episodes uh, with with this escalating conflict between the Narn and the Centauri. And and I, I feel like this is just another representation of that. Like, look. You know, this isn't Star Trek. Um, things may things are getting dark, and things may go badly, and our characters can't always think their ways out, out of these situations. But um, but yeah, at the time it was a it was I, I would say that was generally the sense. And this last um, the last few episodes that that we've seen here, this is a darkening of the series, and it's putting you on edge. And the, the, I think I felt that in the moment too, like. Things are going badly here. Things are going really badly here, and uh, I kind of love that. In in again, in the sense of like you don't know what's going to happen next because my expectations were not that this was going to go like this. This is uh, this is subverting my expectations. Now, you guys, both of you guys mentioned um, mentioned the Jewish Passover thing, and for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with that, and for me who really knows very little about the Jewish faith, could could you maybe ex- one of you guys expand on that a little bit? Sure. So it's it's a uh, so my wife is Jewish, um, so I didn't I I'm not Jewish, but my wife is, and so I've been exposed to Passover. It's a ritual. It's a ritual meal, and there are things you do. And so when Delenn, when John keeps trying to, um, I, I can call him John. He told me I could call him John. Uh, <laughs> Sheridan says, uh, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna eat now." And there, and it's it's kind of funny in the midst of the darkness. There's that funny scene, um, and she's like, "No, no, no! Now we have to do this. Now we have to do this." In Passover, it, it's like that. A Passover seder, you have um, you have things you have to read at various points and different dishes that are that people will kind of dip and then and eventually you get to eat and it's exaggerated here and it's played for laughs but uh but that is it is a religious ritual meal and has significance and and i've been where sheridan's been where i have no idea what's coming next and you don't ideally you don't go into a religious ritual meal really hungry because <laughs> that, that would be that would be bad but passover in general is also about the jews uh avoiding a series of plagues <laughs> and so there's that in the mix here too because we've got the markab culture which is also concerned with uh with plagues and punishments from god and they feel that that is the story of drafa this disease that has has come before and and basically emerged and killed an island it's very much a a, a sodom and gomorrah kind of story mm-hmm. and that's the legend that's driving this so 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 that's you know jms has put that all over this episode even in these plot lines that aren't actually connected thematically they're totally connected right down to the containment area that the markab go into where they paint stuff in their language in red all around the edge of that main doorway Um, yes this is is totally trying blood on the doorway yeah blood on the doorway avoiding the plague of the loss of the firstborn son that the um that the jews were escaping so yeah, it's it's I I can't think of another episode of Babylon 5 that has this direct a parallel. Mm-hmm. Um certainly not um not in the episodes that have um aired thus far in our rewatch, but um yeah, just a little, little light, fluffy bit of entertainment, y'all. <laughs> wow, it just well, gets like darker and deeper the more the more I learn about it. Well, and it's funny yeah, if you look at the Lurker's Guide, you'll see that that uh, people ask about this being an AIDS allegory, and it absolutely is an AIDS allegory. And JMS and it tries to defuse that on the Lurker's Guide in the comments he made on Usenet. But and he says, well, you know, it's also it, it's not just a direct parallel because it's about AIDS and our reactions to that. But I think he's saying something about human nature or. Markab nature too, which is mm-hmm. about human nature that uh, the Black Death we reacted badly to, and that's in the episode too. So mm-hmm. it's it's a broader thing, but definitely the most obvious thing here is we have a group of people who are suffering. We've decided that they're the other. We're going to ignore uh, taking care of them, which comes at the cost of our soul, and will in the end uh, destroy us anyway. Yeah, it's all about uh, the fact that Franklin's coming at coming at it from the side of science. This is a disease we can track, we can, um, we can figure out its progress, we can find what we can do to break the progress, and we can cure it. And 
Dr. Lazarin, on the other hand, is agrees with Stephen, but is also fighting the fact that this entire culture has partially been shaped by this legend, uh, and, and it's all wrapped up in politics. And that's one of the things that JMS kept hammering on the Lurker's Guide comments is it's not about good or bad. It's about what happens when politics gets involved and messes and gets in the way of science. Politics and prejudice and, mm-hmm. um, you know, religious uh uh, the word that I'm looking for is escaping me, but um, but politics and prejudice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a good time to uh, bring in the co-star, uh, Mr. Jim Norton, who played Ombuds Wellington last season um, and plays Dr. Lazarin uh, this time. And this is a really strong guest role. Dr. Franklin mentioned in a previous episode a Marcab doctor he knows. Mm-hmm. This is clearly that doctor so of course he's going to die um (laughs) but uh but this is very much a dr franklin episode but lazarin carries a big load of the storyline as well and the relationship between these two and the regret that lazarin shows as well as his commitment to try to make things better um that's the pairing in this episode that gives it the most juice and it starts out at the very beginning, too, from their first scene together over the, the bed of the, the dead Markab before Dr. Franklin knows what's going on. They have they have this, you know, sort of back and forth and, you know, I, I have jurisdiction over my people. And Dr. Franklin's like, yes, you've told me that three times already. But it's very much a relaxed, friendly sort of back and forth, which, you know, really makes me think, of course, this this must be the Markab doctor he was talking about because they, mm-hmm. they have a prior relationship and they didn't need to tell us in five lines that they have a prior relationship that... That actually, that information sort of came later as he was reminiscing on, on his deathbed. Um, but I just, from the very beginning, thought, man, this is a fantastic performance through so much makeup. That's one of the things that I think that Babylon 5 doesn't just put a couple of bumps on somebody's forehead when when you have a, a, an alien race quite often. You're underneath a ton of prosthetics and stuff, and and that can be a hard thing to get around for a performance. And Jim Norton does a, a wonderful job here. And it wasn't until... Mm-hmm. After the episode um, was over, actually, it wasn't until this morning when I got the notes from Chip that I realized that that's who it was that he had played the ombudsman in the previous episodes and and pointed that out to Stephen. And Stephen was like, oh, yeah, we like that guy. That guy was really good. So we were both (laughs) very impressed by his performance here. So I I like that Babylon 5 has the the makeup so that we can have some of these great actors come back again and again in different roles and have it be less obvious than it is in Doctor Who. That's nice. Yeah. Speaking of which... Yep, Jim w- Norton's Jim Norton's one of the trifecta. He's been on Star Trek, on Babylon Five, and he's been in Doctor Who, albeit a voice role in Scream of the Shalka. It counts, <laughs> not canon, but still counts. Um, I, I like. I think this is a great performance. I think it's a great character. I love how he, Dr. Lazarin, progresses. He he initially is incredibly uh, standoffish with Franklin, and in the end, he's basically sacrificing himself uh, to help Franklin. And he embodies everything that is contradictory about about the, this story and about the Markab culture, because he is the embodiment of science uh, going against culture of his own culture. And he comes kind of comes around, but uh, reluctantly and too late. Uh, and it's tragic. And it's a it's a wonderful part, I think, acted well, uh, especially considering that he's under the, you know, that Markab head makeup, which is just like a full head mask mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He does a, just a fantastic job. I didn't think he was that reluctant. I, I thought that he, he had been, he was ordered not to spill the beans and he was following orders, but when uh, Franklin called him out on it, and I love that scene where he, he sort of stomps, Franklin stop, sort of stomps in and says, "We need privacy. Get out!" And so Lazarin can uh, can can huh. cough it up, uh, so to speak. Um, but as they're walking through the hallways afterwards, uh, you know, Lazarin's frustrated. He he thinks he thinks that this is wrong. He is huh. so. Well, I guess I would say, I think, yeah, you're right. He's caught in the middle. He's been ordered to behave in the manner of the of the culture. And as a man of science, he doesn't agree with that. And he knows it's wrong, but he also knows his orders and he knows how his people will react. And I think that's, that. I mean, it's, it's, it is, it's just so tragic because he knows what's happening and he can't do anything to stop it, he feels. Yeah. Um, speaking of people who are trying their best to stop things, uh, how does Richard Biggs do in this episode? 
I, well, uh, I, in, in in when I was here for Believers, I talked about how Franklin was a jerk, <laughs> and I feel like he's much he's much nicer in this one. Um, his his yes, his staff. I, that is a really sad moment. He's like, so volunteers, crickets. All right, I guess I'll go in then. And then Lazarus volunteers. Uh, yeah, the, I I I feel the strains of Babylon Five's budget here that they kind of didn't want to pay for more medical personnel with speaking roles but it's all on franklin and uh you know it's a good it, him he and lazarin that's that's a, this is i think one of franklin's best uh best bits in the in, certainly in the series to date yeah i think he's just wonderful he's just he's been a strong character i think all along and this is one of the the few stories we've had that's really focused on him and he's got this I feel like he's grown a little bit since since he was first put on the station, because even, you know, back in Believers, the last time Jason was here, he was very idealistic and you owe me a steak dinner. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I think I think he's he's opened his eyes a little bit to the way that the universe works by this time. Because he is, he's still not happy with the way the Mark have have treated this thing. And, you know, he goes off and he's upset about it. But I don't think he has quite the hissy fit that he would have, um, say, a season ago. Uh, he, he actually just turns his focus to buckling down and trying to get it figured out uh, a little bit faster than I think he would have. And his, <laughs> after he had his uh, scolding of his staff and was like, you know, we've got more information than we did 24 hours ago. We're just, you know, we're going to keep working on this and we're going we're gonna to get it done. So, um, Stephen, my Stephen, I was sitting next to on the couch, just sat up and said, "Damn right, I like this character." <laughs> he was really, he was really excited and on board. So I think that he's, he's been a strong character, and I think that this just brought that out even more. He's he's grown. Yeah, I this I love Richard Biggs' performance in this story. I don't know that I love it, but I respect uh, what JMS gave him to work with um, along the way. Um, what really struck me, and this is something that I mentioned when I was talking about pushing all the different buttons, Franklin is much more uh, focused on on getting the job done, a little bit less on, you know, it, it frustrates him that the Marcav have been throwing up all of these roadblocks because of the religious interference. But, you know, he's trying to focus on the problem, on the job. And I think what really resonated for me was um, Big's performance. You know, he's, uh, you know, again, um, we. this is like the second time I think we've seen him using stems to try and get through a crisis. Is that right? Um, At least. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's, you know, running on empty and he gets to a point where back in Believers, I don't think he ever believed he was going to fail. Here... He knows failure is an option. And then there is that moment where he just looks down and looks like, I'm not going to be able to figure this one out. I'm not going to be able to fix this. And, you know, he slams the slams the cart down and, you know, has a hissy fit over it. And then the cross results that he asked for between the Markab and the Pakmara pop up and and give him something. And, you know, and then he's like, you know, totally renewed because this is what he can do. This is what he can fix. And that just, you know, makes me want to kick JMS all the more when, you know, he comes charging down. They've got 500 doses of this of this vaccine. They think they can stop it and work towards a permanent cure. And they open it up and find out that there's no one left to test it on. And that just is absolutely crushing. Mm. It is crushing, although there are a couple of uh, sort of logic leaps in the episode here that sort of help maintain that. Uh, For example, Mm -hmm. I think a line in there that uh, the... (laughs) <laughs> that the Markab didn't want any security cameras or anything in there might have helped a little bit. It, it, I find it hard mm-hmm. to believe that nobody knew that they were all dead back there, that nobody was in, mm. t- in, in contact with Delin or Lanier, that sort that's of thing. That's true. Um, yep, so, that's something I hadn't even thought of. And you kind of don't because the emotion of the episode just sort of uh, picks you up and carries you along. Well, they say they say they're isolating themselves. There is a line, right? That yeah. we're isolating ourselves from you. We are turning inward, and we because our sin was talking to aliens, and so we're going to close ourselves off. And when we emerge, you'll all be dead, and we'll be fine. And so I, that's I think the line where they're trying to say, why does nobody know what's going on in there? That that's why they don't want to talk. Mm-hmm. They're they're yeah. not talking. Yeah, yeah. But, but still, but how how hard would it have been for me, like Delenn, if, if they let Delenn and Lanier go in to help? Why can't Delenn have some kind of communication device? But but they had to go negotiate to be let in, right? So mm-hmm. maybe I don't know. Right, and, but and internal sensors could probably have been yeah. con- reconfigured they have cameras all that in stuff. there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's a great performance for uh, for Richard Biggs as Franklin. It is well directed. You know, there's just this one moment that I kind of cringed a little bit when. 
after Lazarin dies and um, Franklin's sort of laid low and the camera moves over and there is this convenient cart with convenient glassware all over it and you know it's going down mm. it's a it's a bad day to be a it's a bad day to be a cart in med lab um and you know that it's going down otherwise i think that this is a well-directed episode by kevin crimmon who was the unit production manager on a lot of uh, season one and season two episodes he directed a spider in the web or mm. spider in the web i know that there are some <laughs> arguments over that um, he also produced TV series like Rizzoli and Isles, The Shield, Sons of Anarchy. Um, this is this this is a guy who um, definitely rose in the Hollywood ranks and um, camera movement, depth of field, all the sorts of things that were ignored in early Babylon Five episodes and more pedestrian directing. They're all here, so this is this is this guy's doing a good job. Yeah, Stephen was really excited about this one um, after the the scene in the boardroom where they're trying to figure out what to do about it. And the camera is just constantly in motion. It's focusing on one person, then another. And you actually have characters sitting with their backs to the camera, which is so refreshing mm-hmm. because it's not like a sitcom where for some reason this family mm-hmm. leaves one side of their table open. It's um. probably for Valen <laughs> is what I'm thinking. Um that's that's the the actual yep. reason for every sitcom I've ever watched is they had the place open for Valen, um, but so the camera's oh, yeah. moving in and, and focusing on different people. So Stephen commented on that while we were watching the episode. He was really really impressed by that. And then later, I can't remember exactly what scene it was, but uh, I think it was in Med Lab where he was like, "Whoa, nice dolly zoom!" So you had like the retrograde zoom with the camera moving one direction, mm-hmm. the, the lens going the other, and it was it was just a lot of good stuff like that. This is also a it's not a really big. Sheridan story, as he explicitly says during that scene, um, you know, this is your area, doctor. What's what's our next step? You know, he he knows well enough to get out of the way. Delin and to a slightly lesser extent, Lanier. This is a big episode for them, I think, because we've been sort of tracking. um, We've been tracking Delin's sort of rise and fall. She's back on her own feet again. She is strong in this episode. Um, she is, uh, there is something that she must do and she is very determined and she's going to do it. She's going to help these people. Is Delin back? It sure seems like it. I mean, <clears throat> that's the scene uh, when she just lets Sheridan have it. I mean, I enjoyed this, the, the, the funny dinner scene um, quite a bit. I thought that was neat. She was, she seemed very patient with him, like a patient mother, sort of like, and this is what we do now. Um, I just felt so sorry for Lanier during that scene, but go ahead. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Me too. But the, the later scene when she comes into his uh, his room to ask permission to, to go into the containment zone with the Mark Hab, and he says, you know, these are not your people. And she just, she, she is not having any of that. You know, I didn't realize similarity was a requirement for compassion yeah. and that is just i feel like that's dylan back at the top of her game the way we saw her early on she's strong she's got her convictions and she is not letting anybody keep her down <clears throat> so i mean i don't know that it's it's gonna stay I, I feel like by the end of the episode she was she still seemed strong but she was emotionally just so raw overwrought yeah it yeah. was oh god she's so, mirror furlan's just so good <laughs> That I mean, that moment, I, I remember that from the first time I saw this episode, the way that her face just contorts when she collapses against Sheridan. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's and the way that the way that Lanier staggers to his feet and stiffly God. walks out, you know, uh, Bill Mooney and Mira Furlan both um they nail this thing faith manages mm-hmm. um and the, the yeah. fact that she, the, the fact that she even collapses against you know a, a, another person much less a, a person of a different completely different race it just it that was like that that brought it home all the more that she was she was this this weakened emotionally and this brought low it's like wow it just devastated yeah. right and, and, and yeah to go back a bit i think part of the reason though that she's able to stand so strongly is Again, she is isolated from her own people. These these people are, you know, the Marcab is not her race. It doesn't make a difference to her. She feels she should minister. She should help. She should offer comfort. And, you know, if it were the Mimbari, I think, you know, in that situation, she would try and face the fact that she might be rejected. But because the Marcab and the humans of the station are not rejecting her, uh, I think, you know, that's part of the reason that she's able, again, to to stand taller. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I do like that scene uh, where she tells Sheridan what she's going to do. Um, she's sort of kind of asking for permission, but she's not really. Right. Um, and um, you will let me in there. <laughs> basically. <laughs> basically. Um, and I like the way that she, as Sheridan gets ready to call it in that uh, he's going to allow her to go in there. I like the way that she sort of stops and puts her hand on his and she says, look at me. You know, she yeah, don't uh, look don't, away. Don't don't look away. It, it reminds me of it's not a callback because it happened 20 years before. But uh, that <laughs> line in Doctor Who when uh, the 12th Doctor admits to Clara why he doesn't like hugging because mm-hmm. it's too easy to hide your face. She wants Sheridan to look and see and understand. And this is an advancement in their relationship. Um, and at, that's the point when uh, Sheridan says, next time you see me, note of hope, call me John. Which unfortunately is that she sobs that to him after yeah. all the Narcav have died. But it's a beautiful moment. This is, I mean, this is this is also, it's not just Delenn's strength story arc. And I know as a listener to, to this podcast, uh, you've been talking a lot about sh- uh, the waxing and waning of power of Delenn and w- what her place is. But this, I feel like this episode is also very much uh, putting Delenn in the context of the religious cast of the Minbari. That mm-hmm. not only do we see the religious ritual up top, and obviously all the Minbari have the religion, but she's in the religious cast. And we see so much Mumbari politics and war, but what does it mean in the religious cast, and what does it mean that Delenn is at the at the summit of that, more or less? And it's not just these uh, meditations and contemplations and Flarn, but it is also <laughs> this way of viewing life. And so she says, mm-hmm. you know, it does. I have to go there in pain and frightened. I need to go minister to them. She says, all life is transitory. If I don't see you again here, I will see you in a little while in the place where no shadows fall. She is. This is a about her faith in and, and doing what's right, and um, and then she ministers to the sick. So um, and then and then in the end, she is the la- you know she and Lanier are the only ones left when they open it up. It, it is it, the the religious imagery and the understanding of of Delenn as a as a, a, a religious figure uh, of her, on her own as well as being a, a believer and having this amazing uh, faith and and philosophy. That I mean, I, I really like this episode for that. That this is who Delenn is. This is why she is where she is. Is to is it's all writ in her behavior in this episode. Yeah, the the whole episode has this all these great textures because you know we've got the negative side of religion represented in the Markab ambassador who's That's a real good they point. Can, you know, pray yep. it away. You've got Delenn's side. You know, going in and risking. You know, her she and Lanier risk their lives. They don't know if this um, disease is going to jump to them or not when they go in. And and even the levels of you know compassion and then faith. One of the things that I noticed was um, just how little moments show the compassion of the B five command staff. Of course, you've got Franklin fighting um, like crazy with um, with his knowledge and with his medicine. What can he do to help? And then you've got that scene where Garibaldi stops the humans from attacking the one Markab. And, you know, the, the, the other guys were, you know, like kicking him and careful not to touch him skin to skin. And the guy holds up, the Markab holds up a hand and Garibaldi just looks at him and hauls him back to his feet and, and starts helping him down and the hall. Helps you know, him down so the, the hall. Compassion, the compassion of action. You know, Garibaldi may not be a believer, but he's not going to leave this man lying down. Yeah. And so also all these layers. And also let's point out that uh, the two moments of uh, point of view camera in this episode are from a Markab's point of view that uh, Mm -hmm. that Markab in the hallway and the uh, little girl uh, making her way into the containment area with the security Mm -hmm. looking stern and non Markab's uh, yelling insults and you know so but I think that's I think that that's powerful that the point of view characters in those moments are always Markab who are Mm -hmm. doomed and while we're on, while we're on that subject, what is it that JMS has against kids? I mean, come on. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I was saying that one of the things that <clears throat> that Stephen has always sort of complained about in Doctor Who is that he doesn't like it, w- it when there are children in episodes of Doctor Who because suddenly all of the jeopardy immediately gets just sucked out of the room. If you see a kid, you know that nothing bad is actually going to happen. They're not going to kill off the kid. So suddenly, because of the because scared. it's a family show, yada yada yep, yada. Exactly, and I mean Babylon Five certainly not the same kind of show, but. 
having many years of Doctor Who behind us, it's it's hard to, to shake off some of those ideas. So coming into this story, uh, you know, you see a kid. And now after watching this, I was kind of like, this is almost the opposite. If you see a kid on Babylon 5, you should be worried because they're probably going to be dead <laughs> by the end of the episode. It's just completely the other way around. The only one who made it out scot-free is that telepath. <laughs> That's right. And she wasn't even all that young. So I think it's like there's an inverse, you know, proportional relationship between the, the age of the, uh, the the person and their likelihood to make it out of the episode of Babylon 5 alive. Yeah. So this episode ends on a real downer. Um, Delenn is the voice of hope. She's philosophical. You know, what we do with this is we learn from this and we remember what happened so that next time this doesn't happen again. You know, she's very serene and determined. And then this episode had so many good extra actor performances, so I guess we had to close by going back to form with the stupid bartender actor um, telling the stupid joke. But that jerk bartender is the voice of cynicism, and um, Franklin just sees that it's, it's not going to change. There's going to be another Black Plague. There's going to be another AIDS. We just don't learn. Chalmers Syndrome, Chip. Chalmers, Chalmers Syndrome. Syndrome. Yeah. It's the classic Star Trek gambit where you have the third thing that's totally made up. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's part of what, yeah, JMS does that kind of all through this episode that of, of, of back and forth and up and down. You know, we mentioned how, you know, at the moment that Stephen's just about to fall into total despair, the answer arrives and then there's the upswing and then he's, you know, got all the vaccines and he brings them and boom, crash. That happens at the end. Like you said, you've got, you know, Delenn's hope on one side versus, you know, this guy's really bad, awful joke and Stephen's nothing ever changes. You have it in little places here and there. Um, there's the point where the uh, Dylan and Lanier find the little girl in the isolation area. And, um, you know, Delenn sends Lanier to, to go find Mama, since, you know, the little girl apparently doesn't know Mom's name. And I'm like, okay, why didn't you ask the little girl's name and send Lanier with the little girl's name to everybody? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he finds the mother and they're feeling happy and Delenn's very pleased to see that they're reunited. And then that's, of course, the exact second that the little girl sways from dizziness and you see that, you know, she's that she's got it and she's going to be dead. You know, yeah. it just up and down and up and down. And, and really, this, it never this, stops. This whole episode was was kind of a wow moment in a way, like we've talked. But that that moment with the bartender at the end is also a bit of a wow moment. I mean, <clears throat> it certainly worked out that way for Stephen. He, uh, okay, how can I how can I edit this one? He said, <laughs> he said, <laughs> well, Babylon Five is a racist stuff hole. He didn't say stuff. <laughs> um, he's just like an entire species died, and the bartender is making a joke. Wow. Mm. Like just just that moment kind of knocked him back, I think, as much as the rest of the episode did mm-hmm. um, it, because it was so realistic, because that is the way yeah. that is the way it works. And it's, you know, humans tend to be insensitive. And I think he Stephen, even noticed that uh, that even Sheridan seemed a little bit on the insensitive side at the end because he says we dodged a bullet there. And Stephen's like, yeah, dodged a bullet, except for the two billion Markab who yeah. died. <laughs> so he's yeah. uh, Sheridan is I feel like he's. Is still a little bit uh, earth centric in his in his thinking. You know, Delenn's not the you know Delenn shoots him down earlier when he says these are not of your people, but he's he's still sort of thinking that way by the end. Well, and and he's also well, he's in command of that station. You know, he's got a quarter of a billion aliens of all uh, humans. True. You know, so he's I I, I I I that made me pause too. But I also was like, yeah, he's thinking like the captain of the station. Yep. You know, that they that, that the only people who died were, you know, the Marqueb and one Pacmara, and they managed to keep it from spreading further. So Well, based on this episode alone, I think JMS's philosophy is that there is hope if we learn, but we'll never learn. <laughs> what a feel good positive. <laughs> Hi everybody. <laughs> it's been great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's 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 what he's saying, right? Is the lesson is that that's the lesson here is that is that we are doomed to repeat. I don't know. It, it's but there's well, always hope, right? Delenn's Delenn's behavior is the hope here. Yeah. Well, and it's sort of he sums it up in in the one line from from Lazarin of um, your test is not necessarily to find the answer, but see how you deal with it when you realize there is no answer. How do you deal with that? You know that that's kind mm-hmm. of I think that sort of sums up the what jms presents of his philosophy in this episode yeah yeah 
Well, I think that... It's time to meet the Muppets on the Muppet Show tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking speaking of Muppets, uh, that just brings up two things. Talking about Delenn being sort of the focal point in a way of this episode, Stephen noticed that her makeup is is quite a bit better here. The the join between her, you know, her bone and her face is actually much smoother at this point, which was kind of nice because we got a lot of nice shots of, of Delenn. Mm-hmm. And speaking then of the makeup, Stephen was wowed by the uh, the makeup budget for this episode must have been huge because you had all those Marcab extras, all of them wearing, yeah. you know, yeah. just masks. But still, those are 50 or, 50 or more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then yeah, at the that... end of the episode, Stephen, because he mentioned this in the middle of the episode, and then at the end of the episode, he turns to me and he goes, oh, my God, they spent all that money on all those masks and now they can, they can never, never use, use them, them again. <laughs> I wonder yeah. if they could. Actually, there's a there's a shot of the Drazi and I wondered if they could like if they could alter them like the collar and stuff and make them Drazi or something later. Uh-huh. But but on the Lurker's Guide, there's a post from JMS yeah. where he says they joked about uh, having a mass grave for the Marquette masks in the back of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, because oh. no other episode would 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 build mm. up because you know we, um, we've been talking in the spoiler side because we knew this episode was coming about you know how the Marcab they've been seeding mentions and appearances of the Marcab, pretty much since very late season one, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been bits and pieces. There's been actors in the masks cross-references of them building up so that, you know, again, and it's, again, unlike Star Trek, where, you know, you travel to this planet, and there's this brand new race that you know nothing about, and you have no connection to or no feel for, and something big and disastrous happens. And of course, on Star Trek, they're going to save the day. But, you know, here, you've got something that's been interwoven into the storyline, Maybe not quite as much as the the, the major races, uh, maybe not quite as much as the Drazi or a couple of others, but still a pretty consistent buildup of their presence. And then, boom, this happens. And I know this is normally we we segregate on this podcast the spoilers from the not spoilers, you know, but I, I will say for people watching this, watch the next few episodes and look for an empty chair. In the council chambers, because that's something that happens is the the the, uh, Markab seat is vacant for the rest of the season. So you can keep thinking about how sad this episode was as you watch future episodes. (laughs) And again, Babylon 5 is all about continuity before and after all of the things. Continuity and consequences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And on that note, uh, we have been talking for about 40 odd minutes and we haven't even gotten to the spoiler section yet. So... If you have never seen Babylon 5 before, uh, if you're watching through for the first time and you don't want to be spoiled for future episodes, Muppet Show, I recommend that. <laughs> um, Adventure Time, maybe. Um, uh, a glass a of nice, warm milk, teddy bear. Uh, some cat a- videos cider. on YouTube. <laughs> apple c- yes, yes, yeah, yes. Oh, wait, the Babylon 5 foster kittens. Yes, there you go, go watch kittens. There, there you go. Go back and look at that if you're watching, if you're listening to this podcast a couple of years from now. But anyway... Next time, the baton is Erica's as the um, as the leader of the podcast, and the episode is Divided Loyalties. That will be your homework for next time. We are, of course, happy to discuss this episode with you at b5audioguide.com, on Tumblr, b5audioguide, on Twitter, B5 Audio Guide. It's such amazing consistency. I love that uh, <laughs> evidence of forethought. I mean, who who would ever who would ever have an uh, have a spelled out name in one um, address and a numeral in another address? <laughs> oh, well, that that, that would planning. never happen. Hmm. That never happen. Anyway, come talk to us in our spoiler and non spoiler threads at the website. Uh, please engage us on the social medias, and if you're ready to be spoiled. We're going through a jump gate. And we're back, but we're not coming out of the Markab jump gate because that's going to get destroyed soon. We'd have no way back home. <laughs> Indeed. Good point. Like so, I said, continuity. Yeah. <sighs> you know, there's a lot of stuff that's planted in this episode for future episodes. Um, and I was thinking as I was watching this, you know, this is the second episode that we're two episodes into basically J. Michael Straczynski's run as sole writer, with the exception of the Gaiman episode in season five. Is it just me, or is this all of a sudden, now that he's writing for the rest of the season and he's 
thinks and he knows that he's going to be writing for the next season and all this other stuff. Is it just me or is that the reason that he's kicking all kinds of arc setup stuff into high gear with this episode? Because there's so much stuff that uh, signals stuff that's going to happen later on. Yeah, it might be the reverse, though, that that at this point he, he has to write it because he's, he's he, at this point he's just going to be telling his story from here on out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's certainly I, I think, you know, we're, we're getting more focus you know, even with an episode that is quote unquote, um, just, you know, an episode outside of the arc, you know, there's still a ton of stuff um, that helps work to make it um, continue seamlessly on. We've got the mention of um, Keffer and, and the Shadow Hunt, the fact that um, Sheridan, you know, shuts down his explorations instantly. Oh, Keffer has never been a worse actor than in this episode. <laughs> so bad. So terrible. <laughs> oh, and actually, when he first appears on the screen, Stephen actually laughed out loud. He went, ha, 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 that guy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh. it's just such a joke that he's in the opening credits. You just, yeah. Well, you won't won't have to deal with him much longer. No. Nope. <laughs> No, we won't. Uh, this is—I mean, I—I've I, said this, I think, before on this on this podcast, but I—I um, don't—I don't ship things. I am not a shipper as a fan, but I ship John and Delenn so hard that it's not even <laughs> oh, yeah. funny. And this episode oh, is just yeah. like catnip because this is it. I mean, this is it's <laughs> happening. Call me John. Oh my God, there. This is here we go. This is this this yeah. really is it. That is kind of the reason this episode exists hmm. because. Up until this point, they've been gradually getting closer, and they've been respecting each other more, and and opening up a little bit. And it's the the dinner thing is it's not like it's it's not as obvious like the dinner date earlier in the season. <laughs> it's the worst mm-hmm. date ever. <laughs> yeah, but um, but you know, it's it, it is the evolution of it is an ele- evolution of friendship. Hmm. Well, and they get to that moment where he thinks she she might die. Yeah, and and, and yeah. you get, you don't want to leave anything unsaid there. Right? Yeah, um, and it, it takes really really crappy catastrophic things to happen to advance this relationship. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she finds out that he's she finds out that he's only got twenty years left to live, and that's when he springs the uh, marriage proposal on her. So like you know, um, you're 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 when when bad things Good happen, move. they cling to each other. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But it, that's true, and it works. I mean, even Stephen mm-hmm. was kind of like a uh, uh, before she goes into the uh, the Marcab place. She's she's talking to him about it after after she lets him have it for for being so uh, insular in his vision. Um, she like you know touches his hand, and he Stephen mm-hmm. gasped. He actually went, "What?" <laughs> Which like in a cartoony way, I was like, "Did you just make that sound?" <laughs> and then you know at, by the end, he just he just kind of sat back and he just went. Hmm? To Lennon Sheridan, intriguing. He's <laughs> <laughs> just like he, he thinks he he mentioned he he's like I see her just becoming more and more human. So I think he's I, I don't know yeah. if he's reading more more in, of that into it or if he's seeing the relationship blossoming as we know it's going to or exactly what he's you know I didn't say a word I kept mom but yeah. I was just in mm. my heart I was like I'm so excited about mm. this episode. Yeah, I mean in, in this. Obviously, we know what's coming, but I'm as I'm watching this, I'm wondering, is this at all subtle? And I'm thinking it's not. I'm thinking it's kind of a neon light that this relationship is going to turn into a relationship. What do you all think? Um, yeah, I think it's a pretty big neon light, but it's also a pretty big thing that they're facing. I mean, you know, like like you all were saying, you know, in times of trouble, in times of catastrophe, they 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 turn to each other, and you know, this is the one of the biggest catastrophes. Blah, blah. <laughs> one of the biggest catastrophes they've uh, faced so far. You know, there is the very real possibility that you know she she may wind up dying in there, and they will never see each other again. So, you know, yes, it's a big, huge neon light, but it's also kind of fitting for the situation. And, and she's also exposed her. Soul. I mean, if if ever Sheridan was wondering who this person is, really, he sees it here. Mm-hmm. He sees her goodness and her um, self sacrifice. She has the- absolutely nothing to gain. There is no advantage for the Minbari government. She is mm-hmm. being Delin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna say I think this is that's the moment he falls in love with her. Really is is at that moment where she's willing to sacrifice, and he says, "When you see me again, call me John." Mm-hmm. I'm going to yeah. put it right there. I think you're right. I'm not going to argue. <laughs> yep. I can I can buy that. Yeah, and I think I think I agree completely that this 
this event pulling them together in this way makes it you know fit more because you know as we have talked about with taking away Sinclair and putting in Sheridan you do kind of have to shoehorn in the relationship and and make it develop a little faster than you would have otherwise and that's this is a great way to do that to give them this catalyst um that, that stands out that way but also at the same time these are people in hugely you know powerful positions their lives are not they're not the same as if you're just going to your normal nine to five job so i think i i think the subtlety of a developing relationship is something that they're not necessarily going to have time for anyway so even if something Mm -hmm. like this hadn't come up i would have still probably been okay with being you know sledgehammered a little bit with their relationship budding because you know things have have to happen in the in the interstitial moments between when other crises are happening no matter what those crises happen to be but i do love jason's observation that this is the moment that he falls in love Mm -hmm. with her because now I'm, i'm i'm completely thinking that that's correct Hmm. You know, I think that this episode could be described as an arc crucible. Because think about, I mean, okay, we got the Dillon and Sheridan relationship. We've got, well, Keffer. We, we've got, <laughs> to make that joke, oh, we got Keffer. Ooh. But, it, yeah. but, but, you know, we, we have that, we have that moment where Sheridan, who has just been told about what this whole shadow war is all about. And he is told that Keffer's been out looking for something weird in hyperspace. And he puts two and two together and says, this is not a good idea. Yeah, cool it, kid. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's almost his first act as a, as a commander in the Shadow War. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. And then we tell Ivanova to tell Keffer to cool it. <laughs> and as bad as Keffer's performance is in that scene, Ivanova, yes, there's something out there. There's also something in here. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yep. Yes. Yes, indeed. I that, was, that was great. Oh, you know yeah. what? I just I just remembered one other Sheridan thing I want to say before we go go too far. I I will agree that that the the moment of of actually falling for her was when she's decided to sacrifice herself. But you could tell that he was he was falling uh, even a little bit even before that because the, the thing that struck me the most was when she comes to his door. He's just about to try to get four hours of sleep before Ivanova wakes him up again. Things are are coming to a head mm-hmm. and the door opens and it's her and she says i'm so sorry for for disturbing you right now and his reaction is just to say oh nope. no 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 nope. like Come i've on seen in. that look mm-hmm. on guys faces uh-huh. before he was very happy to see her and was willing to you know <laughs> he would have given up those four hours of sleep in a heartbeat i think if she had had just wanted to spend some more time with him so yeah. i was i was definitely getting the vibes even before that moment well he, to he be fair you've some... been getting the vibes ever since uh revelations <laughs> yeah i have You're and right. there's also you know and well, I could also see a little bit of him, you know, definitely wanting to make it up to her after he dozed off during the during the meal <laughs> that's earlier. That's true. Yeah, you know, I, that's I, I right. That I probably couldn't get to sleep anyway. That's actually a pretty funny line, considering. <laughs> the um, I, I wanted to mention. I didn't mention it before. Um, when he when he wakes up and they complain about him in Minbari. Which is untranslated and much, I agree, much funnier that way because they're probably saying some pretty hideous things about him. I so wanted, and I know it's the wrong tone for this episode, I wanted them to cut to Sheridan walking down a corridor because we see him kind of emerging into an area. I wanted him to be like eating a burger out of a fast food wrapper (laughs) so badly. (laughs) That would have been good. Oh, my God. Oh, Um, Go ahead, Jason. Oh, um. Well, I wanted to mention so so we we when we talked about Passover, we didn't we we only mentioned in passing that that Valen is is Elijah. He is the yeah. he's the mm-hmm. mythical or you know historical religious figure who's going to come back someday, and we set a place for him. Yeah. So that was that was a that was a really nice uh, in touch. less and, than one year. Yes. <laughs> and and then there's Delenn's story, uh, which mm-hmm. is she tells to the little girl uh, in the in the containment area about how she was a little girl and she was lost and couldn't find her family and a kind of perhaps even glowing figure appeared to her and 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 talked to her and um you and know it was a vorlon it was a vorlon <laughs> <laughs> i forgot about that i was just kind of thinking yeah. who was that what would that have been and then that i forgot was because the I was vorlon's just moving a chess piece along mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> oh uh the last uh, bit of arc crucible material that i wanted to mention was uh, Dr. Franklin's use of stems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets called out it, by Lazarin. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, it, it got it, last time Ivanova was complaining that 
Stephen was pushing himself too hard and Stephen confesses that he was trying to use some stems to keep through it and she said nope and he acknowledges it and behaves and there we go. Here's another crisis and as crises draw Sheridan and Delenn together, crises draw Franklin and Stems together. <laughs> um, and Lazarin's, uh, as you said, Lazarin calls them out on it. You know, that's not good for you, um, which is kind of ironic considering that people are dying everywhere o- mm-hmm. around the station. Yeah. But but again. Um, but the, the fact that the, this is twice now in rapid succession that mm-hmm. we've seen Franklin going to Stems, we know that this is not a good thing um, because of all the way back in the quality of mercy, the doctor that um, finds the machine mm-hmm. and is using it to continue to heal, even though her licenses have been revoked and her license was revoked because she started using Stems and she started making mistakes. So, you know, we've got all these examples mm-hmm. in front of us. And here's the um, amazing thing that... It's still going to be about a year before yeah. this comes home to yeah. roost. Mm-hmm. This is this is yeah. this is seriously Long slow term. build, and that's really yeah. disciplined. I mean, towards the end of the series, as there's less time to work stuff in, um, and as there's a question whether there's going to be a season five or not, JMS gets a little more ham-fisted, but mm-hmm. this is perfectly paced. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kevin Crimmon will be back to direct Walkabout when that comes to a complete head. Well, any any closing thoughts about where Confessions and Lamentations fits in? Because I think it's not just an art crucible, but it's sort of a stealth art crucible as I'm putting <laughs> oh. together words that really don't belong in nope. any sentence together. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's a it's a it's an amazingly powerful story, and yet it, it on its own, but it plants stuff plant seeds for the future. I I couldn't help thinking, and I don't think this this is a seed for the future, but just watching this episode, I couldn't help thinking forward to the the time in season five when Earth is is under quarantine and and has a a giant plague that's, that's, you know, hopefully hopefully it doesn't end the same way. Of course, we never get to find out within Babylon 5 itself, but yeah. Yeah, and that's um, another point because that that plague we know was caused by allies of the shadows. Mm -hmm. Um, There's speculation online. Um, The Markab, we know from uh, the Markab ambassador's speech in the Long Dark, they are aware of the previous shadow war along with the Membari and some of the other races. Um, And some of the questions were opened up. If the if the bartender's crack was true, did the Vorlons eliminate the Markab because they feared them going the way of the shadows this time? Yeah, were the Vorlons the ones who caused it, or was this biological warfare happening from the Shadows' side back then and now? So there's speculation about those possibilities there. I, I like how, uh, since it's nice being here in the spoiler space, because I, I, I like how this, I tried to say this in the in the non-spoiler space uh, in, in, a, in a lighter touch, but this raises the planetary destruction stakes in a way that's important mm-hmm. when you get to the what happens to the Narn home world, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And th- this is like, this is a show not afraid to show this kind of level of destruction and an entire race dying out. And it's good to show that here because then you realize what they're playing with when you get to the those other episodes. You're like, oh my God, they could do anything, <laughs> uh, which I think is good. Although in my head canon, um, the Markab uh, in all those little worlds that were out there, they said there are going to be some around, but Markab civilization is destroyed. In my hand, can they get together? They put together a plan, and in the in the post war uh, interstellar alliance period, you know, Sheridan cut some some funding to go like clean up the Markab homeworld <laughs> and build a new jump gate and kind of get it back together. So, Aww, I Jason, think, I'm all for that. Jason, your soul isn't entirely dark and black. No, no, it's like <laughs> in. Uh, it's funny we were comparing it to Star Trek in in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek. They blow up the planet Vulcan and and Mr. Spock says uh, you know they're building a Vulcan colony with the people who are off world and I I thought oh yeah well that's what the Markab are going to try to do I think yeah, but perhaps a with a more left and yeah they're know, around Sharon, you know that they you know they spread that vaccine around as fast as they could with whoever right. was left that they could right. save yeah um one tiny thing uh we spot our um our first glimpse of a, an alien race that we will see a few times here and there that for anyone who is a longtime comics fan, <laughs> especially of uh, adult and indie titles, you will see this thing with the Sandman helmet from the Neil Gaiman oh, Sandman yeah. series. And um, that um, turns into a, a direct homage because uh, that race will be called the game after mm-hmm. after Gaiman. Yep. <laughs> wow. Uh, I never put that together before, but that yeah. is super cool. Yeah. 
Yep. And <sighs> I, I will say, um, believers may not have hurt so much. This one still hurt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I wound up crying again, this one. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. The, the, the moment when the, when the little girl stumbles is in, oh, that's what I was saying at the front. That is, that is an indelible moment of Babylon 5. I will never forget that. That is, that is one of my top, uh, you know, I can see it. I can always see that scene. Mm-hmm. It's so tragic. It's so sad. Um, yeah. 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 Well, Jason, thanks for coming along for such a cheery episode. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy to help. Happy to help. These are the two. We've knocked them off now, Chip. When you started this podcast, I said, okay, there's these two episodes. That I- <laughs> covered. Covered. Oh, so what now? The one with Rebo and Zudi? <laughs> no. Oh, how much do you hate me? Anyway, I, I'm looking... I'm looking forward to maybe maybe coming back for one of those episodes uh, one of these years that's got my name on the bottom at the Lurker's Guide. But uh, whenever you need me, I'll be here. P- kids don't have to die. Just <laughs> they, that, that's a nice they thing, can, Jason. But they don't have to. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much, Jason, for being with us. And thank you to all of our listeners who are continuing to participate in the audio guide to Babylon 5. We will be back in two weeks. Divided loyalties. That's in two weeks, but for now, this is Chip in Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And you have been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. And for God's sake, keep up with your vaccines. <laughs> here, here. <laughs>